0: This episode is brought to you by Ludwig Coffee, delivering exceptional specialty coffee to New Yorkers since 2018. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. This week on Meet and 3, we're celebrating the food culture of South Carolina with its chef ambassadors. Oh, I'm
1: super excited that it's soft shell crab season. <laughs> Those little suckers are delicious.
2: People think, "Oh, a tomato is a tomato." No, there is a, a good tomato and a bad tomato. So, when they come to, to Hampton or even you know, even in South Carolina, you can really find an incredible ingredient. We started getting lettuce from Micro Leon Farms in
1: Conway. He's it's a, a super sweet family that runs that little farm.
0: Tune in to Meet and 3, available wherever you get your podcasts.
2: This is Meant to be Eaten, a Gastronomica podcast on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host for today, Daniel Bender. This episode is part of a special series in collaboration with Gastronomica, the Journal for Food Studies. Our new issue... Volume 21.2 arrives in May. This issue features articles on topics that include commensality and creative collaboration, the politics of food systems, and race and representation. For the next several weeks, join hosts from the Gastronomica Editorial Collective as we talk with authors. My guest this week is Rob Connolly. Rob is the chef and owner at Bullrich Restaurant in St. Louis. To me, Bullrush is the most interesting restaurant in the United States today, and I had a chance to sit down with Chef Connolly, virtually at least, in late 2020. Visitors can read the complete interview with some mouth-watering pictures in the next issue of Gastronomica. We continue our conversation today. Still virtually, from St. Louis, Rob joins us. I am in Toronto. Thank you for joining us, Rob, and welcome to the show.
1: Yeah, thank you so much for having me.
2: Speaking of visitors and listeners, can you lead us into Bullrush? When we come in, where are we? What do we see? What do we smell?
1: Well, hopefully the first thing you smell is good food that's been cooking. Uh, but but we're in St. Louis, um, just a little bit outside of downtown. So it's a very urban environment in a theater district. And uh, that that's... Pretty important to the concept that we wanted to create here, because what we try to create is a, a restaurant that's more than just food. It's storytelling. Um, it's a retelling of history, but done in a very contemporary way. So when you come in the building, it's very sparse. Uh, some people like to say it, it reminds them of an Asian interior or Japanese interior. Uh, to me, it's more New Nordic, so uh, not too much clutter in the building, because I want you to be able to focus on your guest, on the story, and ultimately on the food.
2: So you describe Bull Rush as rooted in Ozark cuisine. What exactly do you mean by Ozark cuisine? What do you mean by cuisine, perhaps?
1: (laughs) Well, at at some point, maybe I'll know the answers to these questions, because the, the process of asking them is what the restaurant is about. Um, We don't expect to ever have a definitive answer, but we hope to have a a whole myriad of responses or answers to those questions over time. Ultimately, what I was trying to do is um, figure this out because when I would talk to other chefs in the area, they might not even use the term Ozark. They might say high south uh, or mountain cuisine. Uh, Sometimes they wouldn't say cuisine. They would just say food. And so there's even among chefs, a discussion or a debate about what the terminology is. And for me, I, I really, really settled into Ozark cuisine because I think when we cast off the word Ozark, um, I, I feel like that is because we're trying to get rid of some derogatory connotations that might be attached to it. Uh, connotations of poverty, of uh, possibly, well, certainly racism, isolationism. And um, I, while all those things are a part of the Ozarks, like they are any place, they certainly don't define the region. And, and so instead of running away from the word, I, I run right toward it. And, and, and I'll also say when I ask my customers, what's the first thing you think of when I say Ozark, they immediately go to pop culture. They'll talk about uh, the Jason Bateman TV show or... They'll talk about um, Lil Abner, if we want to go a little further back, or Winter's Bone. All of these are really negative uh, depictions of the Ozarks. And if I push harder and say, well, what's a positive depiction that you've seen? I, most people can't come up with anything. And, and so for me, I see this as a really great opportunity to tell the story of the Ozarks through food. And by doing that, it's a it's a messy story. But we're able to portray the Ozarks, how it was and how it's become what it is now.
2: You know, it's interesting. I, I grew up in St. Louis, though I'm in Toronto now. And you mentioned I, I was just giving myself the same quiz. And to me, it was, it was canoeing in the Ozarks, canoeing down the rivers in the Ozarks and catching crayfish with my brother. Um, maybe that speaks closer to the food. Maybe that's why the food speaks to me, but it also speaks to that question you just, the, the concept you just raised about storytelling. And yet, you also talk, when you describe the restaurant, about research. So, I'm really interested in the relationship of research and storytelling. Before we get to the specifics of that, can you tell us about your relationship to the research and maybe to do that with a dish or two that, that speaks to your process.
1: Sure. And, and I think the easiest way for me to start this explanation, because it, it never you never get a short answer from me is that originally my goal was not to define Ozark cuisine. My goal was to explore the food of my childhood and, um, my family's all from the St. Genevieve area. St. Genevieve's the oldest known uh, settlement west of the Mississippi, if you don't count Santa Fe, which I do, having lived in New Mexico. <laughs> but around here, we, we, we only think of St. Genevieve. And, and when I explored that, coming from my very German family in a very French um, village, it there wasn't a lot of interesting things stuff there. Um, I was realizing that what I would call modern or maybe even contemporary is just not interesting to me. What was more interesting is going further back and, and, and finding that point in time where we have this sort of origin story of Ozark cuisine. And, and what I, what, for me, what that is, is that point when the Osage people and other indigenous people first began interacting with settlers and those settlers often would bring the enslaved with them. And those three distinct cultures come together at one particular time, late 18th, early 19th century, and that is what ultimately has evolved into the food that we have today. So we could say, of course, that the indigenous people were here much, much longer, but it's the the combination of the three that evolved to where we are today. So as I was going down these paths and having these awarenesses of the origins of the food that was becoming more and more of interest to me, um, I I just kept digging into archives because textbooks were kind of boring to me. Um, So I've got a doctorate in sports psychology. I'm not afraid of research. Uh, but there's a reason I'm a chef now and not a researcher. I I did that life and I wanted to do something that was more on the creative side for me, Um, but I have those skills and and a penchant for research. So when I do the research, a third party perspective on someone's story is nice, but it's not nearly as engaging as hearing from the original source um, what their story is. And, you know, I'll give you a great example. Uh, one of the angles we are constantly pursuing is the Osage people. Um, there is not written record from the Osage perspective of their food, as far as I found so far. And people are always sharing things with me. So maybe someone will send me a, a, an idea. But what we have is this whole genre of books, which is um, the I was held captive by the the this Indian tribe for 15 years, and here's my story of their life. There's a whole genre of books out there, including um, people who were in, were held captive by the Osage. Well, that's interesting. It gives me a lot of clues. It gives me a lot of information, but it's not the perspective that I am interested in sharing in the work that I'm doing. So, what we have to do is say we have all these tidbits of information. We have um, clues and leads, and at that point, I employ what um, I learned of through um, historic Hebrew uh, studies, and there's a concept called Midrash. The ancient rabbis, the historic rabbis have always used this. Midrash says, we know some things, and we're going to complete this story by filling in the gaps, and we're not making stuff up. What we're doing is taking educated uh, decisions based on the facts that we know and telling the story of using that information. And so that's really what I try to do here um, at Bull Rush because people are always saying, "Well, what recipes did you find?" Well, hardly any recipes. People didn't need recipes back then. How did you cook the meat? Well, you threw it on the fire. You threw it in the pot. So they didn't write. You know, rubbed
2: it. That, that's 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 such a. Fa- Sorry to interrupt, but that that's such a fascinating concept. And you know, if for. I was trained as a social historian, as a labor historian, and and we always talked about it, and, and I think you'll like the concept, as reading across the grain. Uh, grain literally is important here, and it is that concept of how do you take stories from above, because those are the ones who got to write it down and, and use that to to write stories below, and in some sense using the recipe to complete this the history, right?
1: Right. Yeah. And, and so these informed decisions lead to dishes. And so that's what you were asking for. So I'll give you a good example. I um, just started a new cook a couple of weeks ago and he isn't caught up on the research yet. He, it'll take months for him to get there. And so I, I said, well, let's back up and go to square one. What's square one in Ozark cooking? Well, it's going to be pork and wilted greens, um, and and whatever forage is in season. And so, I I said to him, make me your version, knowing that we're fancy and fine dining, um, and see what you can come up with. So he did a sous vide pork roast. Um, he took some of our house cured bacon, which comes from our heritage. Uh, our heritage pork project. Uh, I believe that one is red wattle, and he made bacon out of the red wattle, and then he uh, reduced it to get the bacon drippings and, and hit it on some uh, poke greens that had come up. And, um, and then we put it on grits, of course um, the grits are Floriani grits, which have a history to the region, although more modern times uh, milled to our specifications. I mean, all these fine dining things that, that we have to do the first night that went out. So this is uh, just a couple weeks ago on a Thursday. We're open Thursday through Saturday. And all the customers liked it. It was a perfectly good dish. At the end of the night, I sat down with my cook. I said, okay, now we need to make this rush." And to me, that means I need to give people food and flavors and textures that are complete and also not something that they would ever be able to do at home because otherwise you can do it at home. And so the next night we um, took the pork and this time we did loin, again sous vide. And uh, I wanted it to be a little more tender and it was sous vide in some black walnut sap. We had tapped the trees and that's because I wanted a little bitterness added to the dish. And I said to him, what I really need now is a texture that I call luscious. Um, I think in textures more than flavors. And I said, I need luscious here. So let's take a pork reduction And we can do our magic with hydrocolloids, put it in a whipped cream charger or in the industry, we call them ISIs and make this foam emulsion of the pork stock, which is mostly fat at this point. So we did that super rich, super luscious, a little bit bitter. And then the last piece to it for night number two was those greens. I said, the the wilted greens just aren't working for me. It's not a, a texture that I want what I want is crisp. I want crunchy. I want teeth crackle. And so we um, ended up doing a flash fry, which we try to avoid the deep fryer as much as we can. But here we flash fried, sprinkled with salt and put it on top. The last thing I did on that first night though, was I said, I want you to chop up the pork like you're feeding your little kid because he's got a new kid. And, and that feels odd and fine dining. But I said, the thing is I need it to come up in a spoonful where they get every texture at once. If they start nitpicking and breaking this dish down, it doesn't work anymore. And so that's what he did. For, so that was Friday then. Customers loved it. It went from the least favorite to the most favorite overnight. Saturday comes around and said, okay, we're not quite done yet. Because we haven't tapped into the memories, and memories drive everything we do, whether Whether the customer has the memory or not, we're going to help them make that connection. And so uh, we put it in this dish that a local artist made for us, and uh, they're little acorns. And uh, we put all the food in. I I made the grits a little creamier, um, but then followed the sequence I've already described. And then we blew cherry wood smoke in and put the lid on top of the cup, which made it look like an acorn. So the acorn cap becomes the lid on the cup. That night, people were going crazy over the dish, and we even had a standing ovation from one couple, which was a little goofy in the restaurant, but it was fun because it showed my new employee that in two nights, in three nights, we can really transform a dish from something good to something spectacular, and we do that because we're trying to tell a story, and we're trying to capture all these textures and flavors that... People aren't used to getting in home cooking or even most restaurants, and and so I, you know, that's I think that's the best start to finish uh, example that we've ever had at the restaurant.
2: That is, I love that example, um, and I remember the acorn dishes as well. You know, you you mentioned capturing taste and flavor, but a dish like that is also capturing a little bit of history, right? Yeah, and it's a it's a contested history, isn't it?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, and and you know the the history, that's the smoke. Yes, it's the ingredients, but it's the smoke that smoke harkens to the wood-burning stove, it harkens to the fireplace or the open fire that we can all relate to at some level. But, you know, I you're the way you phrase the question, what one of the things we've really been um exploring lately is how to respond to people who say well, isn't Ozark cooking just Southern cooking? And I bristle at that only because the word Southern has a meaning to me that it doesn't to a lot of people. Many people just say Southern cooking, oh, well, that's uh, you know greens and grits and cornbread and whatnot. And I say, well, no, to me, when you talk Southern cooking, I much more associate that with the Black experience in the South. Um, it's much more tied to the enslaved and the ultimately the freed slaves and the pain and 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 harm that was done during that time. And it's not that I want to politicize food. People don't come into my restaurant to get a lecture on sociopolitical history. That's, I'm not interested. They could in take it. my
2: course for that.
1: Yeah. I, I'm, I'm not interested in doing that and they're not interested in listening, but I need to make sure context stays relevant and accurate. And And so when we do things like grits and greens and pork, of course, I want to talk about what we've learned uh, about the enslaved and the Ozarks and their contribution to the foods that we eat today. Um, And typically, you know, the people come to my restaurant obviously are curious anyway. We we have a few Yelpers who (laughs) just come in because we have five stars. Most people are looking for these stories, though.
2: Now, but is there a risk, Rob, is there a risk of claiming somebody else's history for your table?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, <laughs> and so that with the enslaved and the Osage and Cherokee, um, we never come outright and say this is a dish tied to those those cultures. That's awkward, but it's only awkward because we're just in our second year and one year is a covid year. So I don't even know if it counts. Um, because pre COVID, I would verbally tell you these stories while you're sitting in the dining room. Every customer, every night heard from me. Now everything's done through a video that we produce and we give you a QR code and you watch the video. It's like 90 seconds or two minutes to explain the dish. That's not a dialogue. That's me, um, I don't want to say lecturing because I think they're more entertaining than lecturing. Not that lectures aren't entertaining.
2: However, thank you. I appreciate that.
1: (laughs) (laughs) But I, I, for me, um, we are learning so much about these two larger cultures and the many subcultures within them. And we're aware that it's not our story to tell. It is appropriation. If we are doing that and making money off of it, or if we're claiming it as our own, but At the same time, I have to bring it into the discussion because, again, most people, including most chefs, will just blatantly or or blanketly saying Southern food without acknowledging what Southern food really means. It's like to me when people talk about uh, soul food and talk about a white chef having a soul food restaurant. And I'm like, no, 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 no. You can't, in my opinion. This is obviously debatable, but you can't be a white chef and have a soul food restaurant. That's not possible. Um, so there you know, there's a lot of gray area. There's a lot of touchy stuff that we're grappling with. but the way I deal with it is I have a lot of partners, um, academic partners, uh, research partners, community partners, Uh, you know, one of the projects that we're really excited about now is we are doing genealogy of known freed slaves from the Ozarks. Why is the restaurant doing this? I don't know. It makes no sense, but it's interesting and we're doing it. And as we completed the family trees, I reached out to um, a colleague of mine who runs a nonprofit on the north side of St. Louis, which is uh, traditionally African-American. and. I said, hey, here's what I'm doing. It, it really is making me uneasy in the stomach knowing how to proceed with this, what to do with this. I, like, I, I said to her, I don't want anyone to ever think I'm being white savior by giving this information to someone. I don't want anyone to think that I'm appropriating their family's history. I said, tell me how I can work with this information in a way that um, is best. And so that's how we handle all this stuff. We have a partnership with the Osage Nation's Office of Historic Preservation. The director there feeds me information regularly and I bounce questions off her, but I have yet to put a dish in front of someone and said, this is based on this Osage tradition, for example. It's just not something we would do in the restaurant.
2: We're going to take a short break and we'll be back in just a moment.
0: This episode is brought to you by Ludwig Coffee. With over 100 years of coffee cultivation heritage and the family behind this company, Ludwig Coffee has been delivering exceptional specialty coffee to New Yorkers since 2018. Their network of small, co-op, and family-owned farms grants Ludwig Coffee the opportunity to select exceptionally unique green coffee, ready to roast in small batches in Brooklyn, New York. Splurging on the main ingredient is important, Shop for Ludwig Coffee at LIFCMarketplace.com. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Roberta's was founded in Bushwick in 2008 and has become one of the most iconic restaurants in the country. HRN made its home inside of Roberta's in 2009, and together they have become part of the DIY fabric of the neighborhood. And of course, there's the two Michelin-starred Blanca tucked away in the garden for truly daring diners. But Roberta's also extends beyond Bushwick, with multiple locations in New York City and now in Los Angeles. You can also find their frozen pies in grocery stores around the country. The spirit of Roberta's, like Heritage Radio Network, is everywhere. Here's to many more years of pizza-powered radio. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com.
2: And we're back. This is Meant to Be Eaten with Daniel Bender. I am talking with Chef Rob Connolly about his restaurant Bullrush in St. Louis, Missouri. My longer interview with Rob is available this month in Gastronomica, the journal for food studies. Rob, after you and I talked in the fall, Bullrush sent out an email to their customers with their New Year's goals. And I I loved it. As a food historian, I, I, I loved what I read about your New Year's goals. you We heard in the email about historical research on freed slaves, a seed project, research on Missouri rootstock in France during the phylloxera epidemic, work with African-American growers in St. Louis, and a whole lot more. And then there was a brief line about a new menu coming in January. Tell us about these goals. I've, I felt like I was signing up for a class, <laughs> and that, to me, is a very good thing.
1: Oh. You know, every one of these projects that I've talked about, or you just mentioned from that email, it's just curiosity. Again, we're a restaurant. There's no need for us to do any of this stuff. And I'm not the type that chases every shiny object, but I kind of am with this restaurant because there's, there's so, much, um, so many paths that haven't been gone down before. Uh, like the you mentioned the Phylloxtra, um story and Missouri's role in in saving the French wine industry in the the mid to late eighteenth nineteenth uh, century, like uh, you know who cares? <laughs> it's been so long ago. But I didn't know that story, and I'm from here, and I'm fascinated by it. And and as I've talked to all of These academic partners I have, Missouri Botanical Garden, who's like a world leader in in, uh, botanical research, and and the Danforth Plant Science Center, who's researching Missouri rootstock. And, you know, all these academic institutions, research institutions, and yet no one has what I'm looking for. And so it kind of bothers me. I'm like, well, I need to have this. (laughs) If no one has it, I've got to have it. I need to know what vineyards in France had or still have, but most likely previously had, Missouri rootstock. I need to know that. And if I'm lucky, we'll find it. And if I'm really lucky, there'll be a vineyard that's still on that land today. And if I'm really, really lucky, they export to, Saint, well, to the United States so I can actually get it. But like I said earlier, the end of the story is irrelevant to me. It's it's fun trying. I mean, why are we talking to the National Archive in the United States and also the National Archive in France and looking at um, shipping records, tariff records, um, agricultural institutions I've been communicating in very poor Google French, Google translated French with the um, there's an Institute of, of agriculture in France where I thought there was a statue it turns out there's not and uh, you know it's just fun and I know that the people who sit down and have dinner with me even if they didn't think it was fun coming in I know I can convey how much fun it is them. And even if they have no connection to the Ozarks, I, I would like to think that most of them leave caring a little bit more uh, because of the fun stuff that we've we've been able to find in this process.
2: You know, when we talked before, I asked you about where does a rush recipe begin in, in the archive or in the kitchen or a mixture of both? And maybe I'll rephrase that this time. Um, listeners could Go to the journal to get the answer to that one. But let me rephrase it: How does it affect the taste? Let's start at the end point—the point where the customer is eating the dish. How do you think those partnerships change the taste of the dish?
1: Oh, that's um, that's really a hard question, right? Because when I say Danforth Plant Science Center in my explanation, I can tell that eyes—I'm not going to say eyes roll but I see the glazed look because people don't have a connection with that really important uh, institution. I mean, it's a really important institution that's looking at some very, very important things uh, around um, plants and food. But when I talk about um, the Osage Nation, there, there's a curiosity or an empathy that um, helps people to connect to the story. Or if I talk about Um, oh, one of my favorite things over the past year and a half is we found a seed inventory from an 1843 seed store that went belly up and their inventory was listed at the Recorder of Deeds office. You know, what a quirky little find that was for us because when the archivist who reached out to me to tell me that, um, my first response was, oh, so it said like tomatoes and cucumbers. He said, no, 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 no. It lists the twenty types of tomatoes, the fifteen types of cucumbers, which was an amazing discovery. It's one that we immediately—it
2: really is. the historian in me is jumping up and down. By the way, because
1: I mean, <laughs> wh- wh- why would that recorder of deeds archivist only found it because he likes to, as he said, flip through the old stuff that no one looks at, and he looks for things like inventories, because otherwise it's just legalese, you know, marriages, divorces, bu- business sales. But here was an inventory and he was it caught his eye and he knew about my project and reached out. Well, I immediately sent that to Seed Savers Exchange in Iowa and Baker's Creek in Mansfield, Missouri, which are two huge seed stores in the country. Neither had ever seen it and both were chomping at the bit to get their hands on it. And in response, uh, this will ultimately get to your question, both of them said, well, do you know about these historic seeds from the Ozarks? And all of a sudden, I have 23 different seeds that we share with a dozen different farmers, including you had mentioned uh, the African-American farmers on the north side of St. Louis, that we're now distributing to all these farmers to grow for us as a restaurant and to distribute those seeds out again. And it's creating Flavor diversity and biodiversity that's been gone for decades, if not a century plus. And that's really, really exciting. And there's some great um, specific plants that, that we, we can talk about if it's interesting. But how does all this get down to how the customer enjoys it? Well, if I tell a story well with the flavoring of these partners then I can see that they're much more engaged with the food because think about when you go to just an average restaurant, you pick up the food, you put it in your mouth, you've filled your belly, but that's where it stops. Rarely do you stop and think about the food. With our food, I don't even like telling people what they're eating because I want them to engage with the food. It's important to me how the food gets from my dish into your mouth. It's important to me how your eyes perceive that food. And and I, I see it a lot in Instagram pictures of my food. I'm like, oh, I'm the worst plater ever. My food is not beautiful. But that's because I'm not doing it for a photograph. I'm doing it for eyes, which have a, a three-dimensional ability. And I need you to see depth that you can't get in a two-dimensional image. And so we create food thinking about all these things. And the story is the piece that is normally not at the restaurant where I can give you relevance, I can give you curiosity, sometimes I can give you humor. Um, and, and, I, and I guess I'll just wrap up this answer by saying I don't think about any of these things. Um, it just happens. It happens because the stories, not the stories, the, the letters and journals that I read in the archives, which I only use handwritten ones, I don't do um, digital archives, these are documents that are 150 plus years old that someone held in their hand this paper and they wrote it in this beautiful calligraphy and they folded it up like old timey they did. And then they stamped it with the wax and they wrote the, the um, address on the outside while there's still letter discussion on the outside too. And somehow that went to someone else. Mom, maybe back at, back east. And somehow... That letter was saved by that family for 150 plus years until it finally got into an archive. And I can tell you because of the hundreds of letters that I've looked at, the far vast majority have never been touched or checked out by another person because I look at that checkout card and I'm the first name or I'm the first name in 10 years. Because who cares what Joe Smith wrote People don't know it exists, and even if they knew it exists, they—why do we even care? But for me, giving voice to these people who have been lost to time is fascinating. It's—it's you know, it's beautiful and romantic and all that, but it's just—it's
2: fascinating. It's like—and it it must come into play when you're actually writing out. You're writing recipes that your staff and cooks have to. no at least for a few nights
1: no we we never do no i I draw a picture i drive draw a picture on a whiteboard and (laughs) it's scribbly drawing too and then i bring my cooks over and i say okay well here's what i'm trying to get to make it happen and
2: but we never write a recipe so do you do you feel like you're in 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 not writing recipes which i find fascinating um do you find that you're actually trying to reproduce older kind of, for example, oral traditions of in, in which recipes get passed on and change in that process?
1: My goal from day one, even before I knew what I was doing, as far as the Ozarks and history, was to have a restaurant that is relevant and pushing the definition of what is fine dining in 2020, when we first opened, and then 2021, and we're already looking at 2022. What does fine dining look like? Because if we're looking at what fine dining was in 2019 or 2020, well, we're already too late. So it's always, let's go ahead. So if we use a recipe, if we use, I don't know, another chef's concept, it doesn't work anymore. We're living in the past, not in the future. And if I'm living in the past, whether it's 2019 or 1819, then we've missed that opportunity to define the future because I, I don't want to follow. I want to lead as best I can. And I don't mean that in a pretentious way. I mean, it's just, it's the, it's a mindset that I and my staff have to have. Otherwise you fall into this, Oh, comfortable space of familiarity. And that's not what we want. And that's not what we want to give our diners. You know, Again, I can give you grits and greens and pork in a very comfortable way. We did that on a Thursday. And then I pushed it on Friday and we pushed it more on Saturday to the point that it is just blowing people away. And and now we're in our second week of serving that. And each night we tweak it a little bit more. And the response just gets stronger and stronger. You have never had grits and greens and pork the way we're doing it. And next year, if I do that dish again, I I've, I've jumped the shark. I I've, you know I I know it will be a hit, but then that's not what we're about. Because I remember the dish you had when you dined in the restaurant. We remember most of our customers pretty well, and I can pretty well dial in the menu they had. I can almost guarantee you had an acorn donut with a white chocolate potato mousse, uh, some nocino, and then whatever roasted vegetable happened to be in the kitchen that day. I could almost certainly guarantee that that's what you had.
2: You hit the uh, you hit the acorn on the head. That is exactly what. We <laughs> and had. I was not blowing. Cher- <laughs>
1: I was not blowing cherrywood smoke then. I think I was blowing um, persimmon smoke, if I remember right. Mm-hmm. And this is like what, exactly a right. y- year and a half ago, maybe. But I remember. Yep. I remember that because um, we're constantly creating new. If I were to serve that dish tonight, I know people would love it. That's such a good dish. It was such a hit.
2: My daughter and I turned to each other and said, this is really good.
1: <laughs> and, and that was a 2019 hit. And I can't do that again.
2: There's a part of me that's kind of sad about that, Rob. I, I, <laughs> I want I, that I, dish again. <laughs> I, I hear that.
1: I, I hear that from other diners. Uh, there's a food influencer in town who's very well dined. And I respect him immensely. And he said he, he had two pieces of feedback for me that I, I solicited. And one of them was, um, you should keep your greatest hits. And here's the thing. Well, let me tell you his other advice, because it's the same answer for me. He said, if you would expand the, the pantry of ingredients that you were willing to use, because I'm not willing to put lemons or limes. I'm not willing to put octopus. I'm not willing to put, you know, there's so many things I'm not willing to serve. That's always more interesting to me than what I am serving. If I was willing to do that, he said, I can't even imagine the creations you would have. And I, man, I stewed on that a long time because wouldn't it be easy for me to bring saffron onto the menu and just not make it the star of the dish and ignore it in the description, knowing it would make the dish
2: different, better. And would you leave the partners behind the history? that's,
1: That's exactly it. At that point, I become... Part of the homogenous world of chefs creating this homogenous uh, world of food. And and that's not what I'm interested in. Like, I can do it, but then I'm bored. And I, you know what? Quite frankly, it's more important that I don't get bored than the diner. The diner's coming in for seven courses. They'll be fine. Uh, they'll survive. Even my regulars who come once a month, they'll be fine. They're going to get totally new courses every time they come in. But I don't want to re- Pete courses more than two, three, maybe four weeks. We tell people six weeks for a a total turnover. We never make that. Our our first year open is a hundred new dishes. We since COVID and we started doing videos for our menu description. Now we have actual documentation of the dishes on YouTube. We have over 50 dishes since November. And People always say, "Well, where are the recipes?" There are no recipes. Uh, you know, I know how to make a mousse. I know how to sous vide a piece of pork. I know I don't need a recipe for that because I'm not creating a recipe dish. I'm I'm linking up textures. I'm linking up flavors. I'm linking up temperatures, all within this overall package of what's the story I'm trying to convey.
2: And you know that the, the fact that it comes back to stories. Sort of final observation for me. When I hear that as a food researcher, what I hear is an almost interesting kind of compression of the research process into the cooking process.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I can't, um, I can't ignore or, um, choose to be ignorant about what I know from the research. Um, here, here's a weird example for that. Just uh, but again, I got a new guy. So I'm kind of rehashing things in my head that I need him to know. And last night I said, by the way, we haven't served oysters since you've been here. And I know it makes no sense, but there's so much documentation of oysters back in the 19th century in the Ozarks, they were coming up the Mississippi, they were coming up the Arkansas and coming in inland and, when when I say oysters, yes, we could do fresh, and of course that's what we what we would want to do, but they were getting it cured, they were getting it dried, pickled. And so if we get oysters, of course we'll get fresh because we need to, we're fancy like that, but then we need to do something with it. We can't just give someone an oyster on a half shell because that's not authentic to the period. And I say that knowing that nothing I serve is authentic to the period. <laughs> Everything is 2021. It's it, it As you can imagine, my brain hurts sometimes. It's so hard to keep these arbitrary lines um, in place. And it would be so easy to let them disappear like was suggested to me by the food influencer. But I, I do my best every night to keep it together. And, uh, you know, here's another little example that I just it, sometimes it's for my own humor Because I have a mask on when I am in the dining room, we double mask right now. The guests can't see my face, just my eyes. And I've been playing with the idea of storytelling without a face, where all they get is my words, my vocal inflection, and maybe a little bit in the eyes. And there's a a confection I found um, in the early 20th century. So this is not really the time period we look at. And it was a confection that was that I've since learned is called a needum. Um, needum's from Maine. It's mashed potatoes and sugar. And for them, it would be coconut. I thought, well, we're doing the seed project. Um, one of the seeds that we haven't been able to get is a potato called a rowan potato. Uh, it doesn't exist as far as we know. And I actually just this week got a a hybrid potato that came off of the rowan. So we're going to plant that now, which is fun. But I thought, wouldn't it be fun to be able to tell that story about the Roman potato and how it doesn't exist, and but do it through a confection. So the the shtick that we do is they get the finished with their entree, we clear the plates, my, um, my bartender server, because it's very small staff, everyone does kind of everything, they come in and um, talk about dessert drinks. I walk over and say, I'm so sorry, he jumped the gun, I do have one more savory course for you. Well... Over a few trial runs, I made these needums, but I didn't put coconut because that has no relevance. It, d- it just doesn't work. And I ended up doing the potatoes, the sugar, and almonds. Now, almonds don't have a place, but it's a neutral. It disappears in the dish um, very much so. So I make them into little bitty potatoes that are no bigger than the one joint of your thumb. It, it's It's about the size of a small grape even. And we shape it like a potato. We cover it in um, edible silver leaf. So gold leaf, but here it's silver leaf. We do a slit down the center, open it up. And then I take butter and I cut this little butter pad that's one millimeter by one millimeter and set it in there. And then I give it to him. I, I say, of course, I'm laughing underneath my mask as I'm saying this, but they don't know that I'm very serious and stoic. I've This is 1843 seed list, the Rowan potato and the importance to the area. And here uh, we've just baked it like a baked potato. This is the actual full size of the potato, which is why they don't grow it anymore, which is not true at all. But it's funny to the story in this case. And uh, so I wrap up by saying it's just a baked potato wrapped in edible silver foil and it's got a little pad of butter. All of that is mostly true. <laughs> so, And then I give it to them and I walk away. I don't give them the chance to ask me questions because that will ruin the whole thing. And then I move on through the room. And 30 seconds later, after they've marveled over the idea of edible tinfoil, because they didn't quite hear what I said, <laughs> then all of a sudden you see them bite it and they'll either gasp or laugh. Or a lot of times they will be expletives like, He's an effing liar, (laughs) which which I just love. And then I quickly race out of the room and get their dessert and bring the dessert down, which right now is a 2021 version of a vinegar pie using pawpaw vinegar. And I set that down in front of them with the video card and say, the video will explain all. And in the video, I explain needums. I get more into the 1843 seed list. That is, to me, I'm just loving that. It's the playfulness of it because I never want us to be serious and stoic. That's I, If you remember in our bathroom, we have a little plaque that says employees need to wash their hands and catch the loose squirrel. It, it's silly. It's stupid. But it's me saying, everyone, just relax. Just have a good meal. Don't get stuck in the, the research and the sociopolitical discussions. Just sit back and enjoy your meal. And, and let me uh, take you on a journey telling this story.
2: You know, Rob, that's a great place to stop. And next time we could talk about cooking those squirrels. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Rob, for joining us. Listeners can read my interview with Rob Connolly, Chef Rob Connolly, and learn even more about Bull Rush Restaurant in Gastronomica, the Journal for Food Studies, volume 21.2, coming out in May 2021. For more details, visit gastronomica.org. And join us next week when Krishnendu Ray talks to Alison Hope Alken about race in American television.
0: Meant to be eaten is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you.